Navigating the Storm, Episode 16. All the cliches are true. Hi, welcome to today's episode. I'm Anna Knight, a personal development coach on a mission to help women and non-binary people survive whatever life's got to throw at them and come out the other side stronger and more authentically them than ever. Sometimes I think the challenges that we're living through can feel very isolating. I know at my hardest times I've wondered if anyone else is out there who gets it. So on this podcast, I invite people to share their stories, what they've learned, the advice they have for people walking the same path. My guests aren't necessarily famous, although I would love to have Dolly Parton on one day. My aim is to have real conversations about those topics we might not normally bring up in polite conversation, but that shape our lives, our worlds and our relationships. Today I'm talking to Dr. Caroline Steele, a GP who has first-hand experience with burnout. Now, a couple of years ago, I didn't have a clue what burnout was, even though, as you'll hear, I'd lived it several times by that point. So for context, burnout is a state of emotional, physical and mental exhaustion, often after prolonged stress. If you're feeling overwhelmed, emotionally drained, unable to meet the constant demands of your life, then you might be in burnout yourself. And when Caroline and I spoke, it felt so good to have such an open conversation about what that's like and the ways that we both found our way back out of the burnout. Good morning, Caroline. Hi. And if you could introduce yourself for everyone listening. Sure. I'm Caroline. I'm a GP in Kings Lynn in Norfolk. I'm a mother of two smallish boys. One's nearly 12 and the other one's eight. And I'm currently recovering from burnout, I guess, in my general practice job. When you said that you wanted to talk about burnout, I was actually really excited because it's a topic that we've touched upon in a couple of other interviews, but we've never gone into it in that much depth. And I've actually burned out at least three times in my life that I'm aware of. It's something that's quite near to my heart as a topic. How did you get to the point where you realised that you'd burned out? To be honest, now looking back, I think I have probably burned out before. But this particularly impressive falling off the perch happened at the end of last year. In retrospect, I think it had been going on for a while, probably for months, maybe even years. I am a partner in a GP practice and we'd had a really long time since I joined the practice of very, very stable senior doctors and senior management and then Lots of them retired at the same time. The practice manager who'd been there for, I think, 25 years or something had retired. And we had a really turbulent time afterwards. We had some factionating in the partnership. We had a couple of really quite ineffective practice managers. Things were happening at home as well. We moved my kids' school. Then we moved house, but we moved to a house that had lots of work needed doing to it. So the house was full of workmen. So lots of exciting, positive change, but lots of change all at once. I think looking back, I had not been enjoying my job like I used to 
for a long time and it all just kind of came to a head really I can totally relate to that definitely the first two times that I've kind of looked back and spotted it as burnout had the thing of I just need to survive this half term I just need to survive until Christmas and then Christmas would come and I would collapse for two weeks still feel awful and then go back and do the whole thing again yeah and I remember people saying to me oh but you're always just waiting for this next thing and that's when it's all gonna be okay and it never is and at the time I was quite defensive because I was like but it's not my fault I'm doing my best to keep up but looking back it is that sign of for me I was not okay I was there going oh god I just need to do this it's quite a quite a common pattern I think that we all tell ourselves it's just till this thing happens we can keep going till this thing and the things got shorter and shorter Mm -hmm. by the end of it it was kind of I just need to get through today and then I'll be okay. I just need to get through this surgery. Just need to get to coffee. Yeah. And it was like being on a treadmill that was just getting faster and faster and faster and faster. And rather than switch it off, I just was running faster and faster and faster. When I talked to other people, they all described similar things. And it's interesting what you say as well. A lot of the things can actually be really positive things. There was a lot of good stuff happening, but that still can lead to burnout if you're in that state where you're getting exhausted by the sheer volume of what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. It wasn't really until I actually stopped work, I got signed off and I went to see a counsellor. She kind of said, okay, so what's been happening in your life? And I was going, well, this has happened and this has happened and this has happened and this has happened and we've moved house. And and I was going, oh gosh, really a lot has happened. And it's just been, while you're in it, you just kind of go, okay, yeah, now we're moving house. Okay, yeah, fine. The kids are at a new school and that learning what the new routines are and all that sort of thing. And oh, okay, we've got a new practice manager and okay, we've got a new partner and but actually, when you stop and actually look at it, yes, positive changes, but still changes, still routines that you're not in, that habits that aren't set. So was there a final straw that prompted you into getting signed off? There was. So basically, we'd moved to the new house, so we had a big family Christmas to celebrate being in the new house. And there was two things that I kind of recognised. One, I was cooking Christmas dinner, which I've done loads of times before, really not a problem. And I could not decide how many potatoes to cook. It was an impossible question. I had about a half an hour conversation with my sister's wife. That, in retrospect, was crazy not to be able to make that decision. I should have realised then that my brain was not all right. And then after everyone had gone home after Christmas, I went to work and I had a complaint from a patient. And I just, I couldn't understand what she wanted from me. And Clearly that came across because she complained about me. And the complaint came in and said, I just wanted some sympathy and she had no sympathy. And I thought, no, she's absolutely right. I have nothing left. I cannot give anything else. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in there to give. And then I had a minor fight with my husband, stayed up all night, convinced my marriage was over and everything was over and it was all going to be terrible. And just woke up in the morning and thought, I cannot keep doing this. I just cannot carry on like this. It's really relatable. The potatoes example is something (laughs) that I can totally, totally empathise with. I remember in one of the earlier times that I burned out standing in Tesco's, not being able to pick between four different jars of pasta sauce. And it was a totally arbitrary decision. I could have grabbed any one of them and it would be fine. But just that feeling of, I don't know how to pick and just standing and the longer you try it the more stressful it got and I was there having this absolute meltdown in Tesco's over pasta sauces yeah and you kind of you know it doesn't actually matter it's just pick one just 
decide whether to peel yeah. another potato or not but you, your brain just kind of goes no no that's just too much can't do it can't do it and it feels like life and death at that moment it feels like this is the thing that will make or break the day yeah Christmas will be fine as long as everyone's got enough potatoes but if there's too many <laughs> it's a disaster <laughs> yeah I'm interested because obviously as a GP it's a role where there's a lot of giving of yourself to others yeah did you feel in that moment where you were going I'm not okay was it a shock to that part of your identity which is your professional role oh definitely yeah definitely because I think when the complaint came in I mean, the complaint wasn't a surprise because the consultation did not go well. Sometimes you'll know this yourself. Sometimes you just, from the beginning, you know it's not going well and you can't get it back on track. So the complaint itself was not a surprise, but I was surprised by the, oh my God, no, I can't do this anymore because I am a sympathetic doctor, I think. I do care about my patients and I do give of myself to my patients. I pride myself on being someone who can be someone to share their stories or burdens or whatever it is with so that was a really big blow really to realize that I didn't have that anymore and then even bigger I rang my own GP who was fantastic all the way through this when I went to see him he basically said you you know you have to decide whether you still want to do this job you need some time off don't make any decisions now but maybe this isn't worth it it isn't worth the risk to your health and I that was a real shock that kind of oh but then what, who would I be? What would I yeah. be if I wasn't this? I remember talking to one of my colleagues in my office about that topic. We were talking about how you base part of your identity on what you do. And I remember saying to her, like, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow and couldn't be a speech therapist, that would be it. I wouldn't know who I was anymore. That's who I am at my core. And she was there going, what, really? If you got hit by a bus, you would lose your identity. But at the time, that's how it felt. It was like I'd sunk so much of my self-concept, my beliefs about myself into being an excellent speech therapist and then was faced with this burnout of I hadn't been hit by a bus, but it sure felt like I had and going oh my god who even am I right now if I'm not well enough to go to work yeah absolutely this was something that came up in my therapy actually my therapist said to me so who are you when you're not being a mum a wife a doctor I I don't know you know if I take those roles off there's nothing in the middle and I think that was part of why I burnt out because the me in the middle had gradually been given to work and my kids and my husband and running the house and making it look nice and my community and you know and 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 there was no me left and that's been a big part of my recovery journey I think really rediscovering myself and nurturing myself and really sort of trying things because I honestly I've wanted to be a doctor since I was really young and I've been in the health service now for a scarily long time. Oh, I could definitely relate to that. I decided I was going to be a speech therapist at 14. And from that point, it was like tunnel vision. Every choice I made was, will it get me closer to speech therapy? Or would it hold me back? And if it would hold me back, well, I just don't have time for it. Yeah. And like you say, part of that recovery is working out who you are and what you as your adult self likes and enjoys. 
It was also quite hard to give myself permission because as I was recovering and getting more energy back and feeling a bit better, my natural urge was still sink it back into work. Absolutely. You're feeling a bit better. This is how you'd feel at the end of a half term because you've had 10 days off. It's time to go back. And in each of the cases, it's taken someone close to me to be like, you're not okay yet. You've got a little bit back, but actually that's not going to be enough to sustain you. But that felt quite uncomfortable for me at the time of, but this is what I'm used to doing. This is how I'm used to feeling. And And I think, (sighs) yeah, I think you go kind of, well, I could go back now. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not skipping and happy about it, but I know I'm capable of doing the job again now, so I should go back. Yeah. So it sounds like in that time of your life, having therapy was quite helpful for you. It was honestly the best thing I've ever done. Obviously, I've referred lots of people to therapy of various sorts and advised people to get therapy. But this was a really different experience for me being on the other side. And I think it's made me a better doctor as well as a better person to be on that side of the desk for a change. I did not like it, um, but I did survive. So yes, I found this therapist who was just amazing. She really, really helped me work out all sorts of things, particularly things from my childhood, which I know is a terrible cliche, but there you are, about sort of why I'd gone into the job that I did and why it was so central to my feelings of identity. And yeah, I can't even put it into words. I genuinely think she changed my life and saved my life and helped me rediscover myself. And like, myself again yeah sorry I'm smiling to myself here because you say it's a cliche that it's things in my childhood that I needed to resolve but actually I just think that's so crucial as kids we're out there trying to make sense of the world everything we're experiencing and seeing we file it in our brains as a central truth about the world I remember in the second time I burned out, I did some work with a mental health practitioner and I'd gone in with a very clear, this is what I want. I want to be able to make decisions about my job, about my relationship, and I'm fed up of being unable to decide what pasta sauce to buy and in the very first session I was there thinking we're gonna sort this she's gonna give me a flow chart and I'm gonna know like this is how I make decisions and it'll get me back to quick thinking and and we ended up spending a lot of time talking about how I felt when my middle brother moved out of home and I was the only child left at home and I was like the hell is this (laughs) this is not what I'm here to talk about but this is actually, not helping me choose pasta sauce. Yeah, but at the end of it, I just felt so much lighter just for having unburdened myself of that thing I'd been holding on to since childhood. And like you say, choices like what career to do, quite often they are fueled by these early experiences. So I know for myself, a big part of why I became a speech therapist is my dad had speech therapy at one point in his life and listening to him talk about the impact that that speech therapist had had on his life and how it had changed everything for him. It helped him with his confidence, with his ability at work, with having a fulfilling life. And I was there being like, oh, if I was one of them people, that would be a brilliant thing to be. Yeah, yeah. They'd be so proud of me if I could be the same as that person. And it's not a conscious thing, but when you unpack it and you're like, oh yeah, that was underlying this big decision that I made that really was my focus for about 15 years of my life of just tunnel vision on being a speech therapist. And now I split that like half coaching, half speech therapy, but it's not 
as central to my identity anymore. It's a thing that I do rather than a thing that I am. Yeah, and it's just so interesting, isn't it, to really tunnel into that. Well, why did I decide to do this career? There's no doctors in my family. I don't really even know where it came from. And to take the lid off it and go, oh, there's all that kind of, I want my mum to be proud of me stuff under there. That's a lot of other people's thoughts, other people's ideas about the world, driving me through half of my adult life. Mm -hmm. To me, it's one of the most interesting parts of coaching is that you do get to dig into some of these things and go, why is that important? And like you say, you get down to the, so my mom will be proud of me. And you're there going, yeah, like with a belief like my mom's not proud of me unless I do this. No wonder we're burying ourselves into these things because that's such a big driver for people is feeling love and approval from the people we care about. Absolutely. So therapy was something that was really helpful. What other changes did you make? The first thing I did, I spent basically two weeks just laying in bed, staring at the wall. I would get up in the morning, get dressed, take the kids to school, come home, get back into bed and just... My therapist called it defragging, which I think was probably right. I'm really lucky I have a great husband and he basically took over everything else. I didn't have to make any decisions at all because that was really, really hard for me at that point, making any decisions. So I spent two weeks doing nothing at all. And then I thought, right, I do actually know I spend all my time telling people what they should do to feel better. And it's things like nourish yourself properly, exercise, go outside, all that sort of stuff. So I made myself do the things I tell other people to do, which was, again, not easy, and went for a walk every day. I joined a gym and made myself go, even if I didn't do much when I got there, stopped eating rubbish and started trying to at least put some vegetables in my diet, made sure I was getting a regular bedtime, regular getting up time, that sort of thing. And I also started some antidepressants and started the therapy. Slowly, 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 I felt like I was swimming up from the bottom of a very, very murky, deep pool and coming back to myself, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I love that moment where you're like making myself do the things that I tell other people to do, because I think that's quite often it's a theme that I come up against a lot is that a lot of the time we know the things we could be doing to look after ourselves, to feel better, to feel more rested but somehow actually putting them into practice can be really challenging oh it's so easy to tell people to go for a walk isn't it and then it's like oh I gotta get dressed and actually leave my house and oh every step is so hard and I might see people and then you get back from your 10 minute walk and think I know actually I do feel better I probably should do that again tomorrow. Yeah. I'm probably not actually different from everybody else. I'm still, I'm a person as well. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that I do with the people I coach is think about the things we can do to make that activity most likely to happen. So like you say, if it's going for a walk, well, you need to know where your coat is if it's cold outside. So put your coat as close to the door as physically possible so that it's easy to grab, but it's also that visual reminder to do it. If your trainers are soggy, get your husband to put them on the radiator to dry, like all those things that you can do to make it as easy as possible to do the thing. Because like you say, once you've got going, then you start to feel the benefits and you go, oh, okay, actually, yeah, this was really good. 
but combating that inertia, if you can take as many hurdles out of your way as is humanly possible. And I think there's something in there about working out what parts of an activity are the key to it and what parts are the things that we think we should do. So there's been quite a big discussion in my Facebook group this week about if you don't have the energy to make a sandwich, if you eat the bread and the filling separately, actually you've still consumed a sandwich, just a deconstructed one. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I think also taking the decision out of it. So you haven't got to decide what to have in your sandwich. You've just got some ham and got some bread or got some cheese, got some bread. You don't have to think, oh, what do I feel like having in my sandwich? Or do I feel like going for a walk? What I tended to do was take my kids to school in my trainers and my running gear and then just go straight to the gym after that. So it wasn't a decision. I take the kids to school because that has to happen. And then I go to the gym and I don't come home and have a cup of tea and decide if I feel like it. Yeah. Because then it won't happen. Yeah. And like you say, you've cleared the channel because you've already had to leave the house to get the kids to school. So you're already in motion. You're already going. And it's so much easier to reroute to the gym than come home. Yeah, I'll go later. I've still got time. I've still got to run out of time. Yeah. Particularly when we are in burnout, the last thing our bodies are telling us is you should go to the gym because it's going, I'm tired. But once you've worked out what the things that are going to get you to okay quickest are, making them as easy as possible is quite powerful, I think. Yeah. And and then, like you say, when you're actually there, I think the other thing I'd I've always been a very driven, because I think you have to be to get through med school and, and medical training and stuff like that. But this is another thing that came up recently. I'm doing some hypnotherapy training and we were talking about type A personalities versus type B. And I've always considered myself to be fairly chilled and, you know, a bit type B. And because this was not a group of medical students or doctors, it was very apparent that I was not quite chilled at all. I was probably <laughs> one of the most type A in the group. <laughs> because... Yeah different demographic I'm like oh okay I'm actually yeah that's me okay no wonder I'm so stressed out all the time and I'll go to the gym but I've got to run further or lift heavier or and now I go to the gym and I just enjoy when I do particularly weights I find it switches my brain off it gives me that kind of moment of ah and for my husband it's running now I just concentrate on enjoying that moment of not thinking about anything yeah I completely relate to that of having that I'm fun, I'm easygoing, I'm chilled. And then (laughs) having it pointed out to you that actually, in fact, no, you're not. You're very driven and competitive. And having that moment of going, oh my God, maybe I am a type A personality. And my partner now, when I talk to her about things that I was doing in the past, she says, I don't know how you did all that at once. And looking back, neither do I. But at the time, it it was never even a question of, do I do a part-time master's alongside working full-time? Well, of course I do, because that's the yeah, the logical next step. <laughs> like, why would I not do a part-time master's if the opportunity arose? And, and I ended up being 28, doing a part-time master's and working full-time on a school senior management team in an Ofsted year. And just being like, oh yeah, maybe I've taken on too much. Yeah, yeah. But it's at the time, you kind of go, well, yeah, that's a great opportunity. I'm definitely going to, I definitely want a master's. I'm going to do that. Yeah. 
And of course, comes with so much of the things that were underlying it. Like, my parents were thrilled I was doing a master's. So I was like, yep, this is working. And it is like looking back, that feels like a different version of me. I think that's really interesting about the subconscious drivers thing, because one of the things that came up in my therapy was that I don't do anything I don't think I'm going to be good at. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's a purpose to. So I would yeah. never just draw a picture for fun if I'm going to draw a picture it has to go in an art show and be bought or win a prize or um, if I'm going to play the violin I need to know when I'm going to be doing grade one when I might be ready for grade two when could I join an orchestra my counsellor said so what do you do just for fun and I was like um that doesn't I can't that doesn't even make any sense to me and after each therapy session I've got two sisters and I came back and talked to them and they're both very similar um came back and said she asked me what I did for fun and they were that, that was just for fun, that wasn't leading to anything, had no purpose. And they were like, why would it be fun if it had no purpose? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I totally, this resonates with me so much because I was exactly in that same place. Even though I've done a lot of work and I've moved past that, I do still notice one of the things that I've started doing to kind of broaden out my horizons is as a kid, I really loved like modeling. So I've bought some polymer clay and I'm doing modeling things. But I found myself the other day, my brain had gone into, I can make this as a present and who can I give this to and who can I give this to? And (laughs) I'd have to catch myself and go, oh no, actually, this is just meant to be fun. Like you're not meant to be doing it for someone else. You're doing it just to enjoy it. So hard. Yeah. And it's an unlearning that I think you go through again and again. That Even once you've had that bombshell realisation of, oh, I don't really let myself do anything if it's not purposeful. Definitely. And I found when we had this conversation with a the therapist, she said, well, what have you done for fun? And one of the things I did, probably when I was burnt out last time in my job, I changed careers. And so I was doing obs and gynae, and, which I really enjoyed but it wasn't the forever job for me but I picked up as I got sort of bored in that I think when I start to think this isn't for me I look for something else to learn so I started the violin and we had the conversation in my therapy about doing something for fun I was like right I'm going to do something for fun I'm going to get my violin back out and I'm going to play it and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to say look Georgina look how great I am I have done something for fun (laughs) give me a star yeah I thought no don't think that was the point she was making so I'm not going to get my violin back out. <laughs> I'm going to do something else. But I don't know what because I don't know how to have fun if it's not to get a tick or approval or a yeah. piece of paper or something. Which is really sad. I feel like a lot of the people listening to this are going to be going like, oh my God, yeah. I feel so called out right now. <laughs> it's been interesting talking to other... I've got a couple of friends who were doctors and have left the profession and it's so interesting talking to them I've got um my best friend stopped before she'd even finished her f1 year do that and I think the same thing had happened to her when we talk about it she'd kind of gone oh okay I'm pregnant so I'm, and I'm working and I'm pregnant oh and look at this lovely house we we really really want this house but it needs a lot of work do so I'll just add that to my plate I'll just keep adding until you fall over yeah So to slightly change the topic, you mentioned the support from your husband in the initial first few weeks. There's probably a lot of people out there who are thinking, oh, this sounds like my partner, my wife, my husband. What can partners do to support people who are going through burnout? Oh gosh, this is a really good question. And I think it's really, I think it's quite hard because I think Quite often, the person who is burning out, particularly if, like we've talked about, you're very, it's all very built up in your identity. I was really 
resistant before I just completely fell off the perch I was quite resistant to the idea that I wasn't coping and I wasn't fine um and so my husband would say things like I might take the boys out for the afternoon so you can get some I'm fine I don't need a rest I'll come with you I don't want to miss out on whatever it is you're doing with Uh them and actually I did need time on my own that's what I needed and I just couldn't couldn't see it I suppose Mm -hmm. I think it depends a little bit I think from talking to people that kind of not being able to make decisions is quite often a big bit of it so what was really helpful for me was that I didn't have to make any decisions there was no more what do you want for tea do you want a cup of coffee it was literally just here is your dinner eat it or don't here is Uh a drink do you want it we're going for a walk now put your shoes on and almost like to not make me make the choice about what to eat or where to go or did I want to watch this film or that film, just to take all those sort of low-level decisions that were so hard out to give me space to make important decisions. Like, am I all right to go be at work? It sounds like kind of emptying that stress bucket a bit of going, yeah, you know what, you don't need to decide how many potatoes we need for dinner because let's do 12 or yes, yeah. you don't need to pick which pasta sauce, this one is the pasta sauce. It's amazing what someone else taking those little decisions away can actually free up for you in terms of brain space and energy. And and I think a little bit, and I don't, obviously I'm in a heterosexual relationship and I don't know, maybe this is different in other relationships, but I think particularly in heterosexual relationships, the woman takes on a lot of the mental workload, the emotional labour of the running the house. And I can remember, this is quite a while ago, because my husband and I have worked in progress for quite a long time. I can remember him saying, well, if you tell me what to do, I'll, I'm happy to do it. And I'm like, no, that's the bit I don't want to do I don't want to have to be thinking for you as well as for me and for the kids Uh and it came to a head I'd been away for a work weekend and I was back Monday morning came and got up and he said oh there's no clean gym kit for the kids I'm like yeah it doesn't clean itself on a Friday we get home from school (laughs) and I put it in the wash and from then on he's actually been really really good and so I think that's the other thing to not ask the person who's already drowning what they need Mm -hmm. but to actually this is similar advice to the advice I give to new parents if someone says can I do anything to help say yes put the washing on yes go and do some shopping for me yes cook me some food not uh, I'll try and think of something and similarly if you want to help someone say I'm going to go shopping now and buy the food for the week mm-hmm. obviously the kids need clothes I'm going to wash them and that taking the emotional mental workload away a little bit yeah one of the things that Mel and I did that I've just remembered is almost had like a little checklist of if Anna's not okay this is what I can do and it was things like make a cup of tea put a load of washing on but it meant that Mel had something that she could just kind of go down the list and be like oh I'm going to do this. Still needs a bit more. I'm going to do this. Yeah. (laughs) And it it freed up the brain space for her as well, which was a really great part of it too. I think the thing that helped us in that moment looking back on it was that we framed it in terms of it being an acts of service love language thing that she wasn't being put upon. It was what she could do to show that she cared at times when our normal ways of doing that were altered because we weren't going out and spending the quality time doing stuff out in the world because I was too exhausted for that. So she still had those ways of going, oh yeah, this is me showing love. It's just expressing love through the medium of a load of washing or doing the pots or sorting out tea for the night. Absolutely. I think that's really important. 
like you say, there is that difference in that emotional labor. And when you go through that dynamic shift, it can actually feel quite challenging for everyone involved because there's the other person taking on those things that they, in some cases, weren't even aware was a thing, like just hadn't had that perception of what or that emotional labor that their partner was doing. At the same time, the partner's there trying to give up control and having those moments of, oh, you just do it like this and you've forgotten this. And like you say, that frustration where you're like, the gym kit doesn't clean itself. And I do think for us, framing that as just a different way of showing love was really helpful so that we didn't go into that snappy, resentful place. Yeah, and I think people who love you want you to feel good, don't they? They want you to feel better and they can often see that you're not right before. Well, certainly for me, I'm not very emotionally self-aware. I'm working on it, but I'm not great. And I think other people could see it first. And I would see any attempt to say, yeah, I just think maybe you need a little bit of help. I'd be like, I don't need help. I don't need help. I'm great. And actually being able to see that Alistair doing just taking the kids out was not a kind of we don't want you with us which is how I interpreted it you don't deserve to come and have fun you're no fun Mm -hmm. my husband is very he's not a particularly verbal person he's very much a act of service I think is definitely his love language and he's amazing and if I actually stop and look at it like you say in that frame in that that's what this is it's great and I've been able to do that when I'm not going I can do everything I can do it it's fine I can juggle everything and also you're not doing that washing properly and I would have bought that pasta sauce and and that kind of micromanaging thing you I think that's one of the things women perhaps aren't so good at just going okay so you've let the kids go out in that's a pajama top and he's wearing trousers that are too small but so what they've gone out they've had fun they're alive yeah, they weren't matter. naked in public, job done. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, that kind of, okay, it's not how I would have done it, but it's okay, but worth it. Oh, definitely. So if there's people out there who are listening to this and going, oh no, I think I'm in burnout, what should their first step be? I think it's really hard because I think... I think I was burning out for a long time and I did the questionnaires and stuff. Are you at risk of burnout? And it would be like, yeah, you're at medium to high risk. And I'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah, only medium to high, not high to very high. So that's okay. I'll keep going. So I think I think the first thing is to take it seriously. And I think maybe realize that you don't have to have a baseline level of burnout. Yeah, A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to someone on the podcast who has chronic illness. I have a couple of chronic illnesses myself. I'd seen on the internet a meme of like, oh, how much pain are you in? And they were like, oh, you know, just the usual amount. And someone being like, the usual amount is no pain. Nothing. Yeah. And having that, I think there is that parallel with burnout of the usual amount of burnout is no burnout there is no normal level of oh my god I'm exhausted and I'm empty yeah but it's I think until you've been there it's actually quite hard I'm much better at recognizing when I'm starting to get overwhelmed now now that I know how bad it can get and that I don't want to get there and I recognize my own signs but the thing looking back on it I think my body was trying to tell me I was not okay for a long time and I was just Mm -hmm. pushing through it I had daily headaches and terrible weird blistering eczema on my feet and just lots of little things you know indigestion and and this and this and this and I look back now and I go yeah your body was trying to say we're we're not okay 
Something has to change. Yeah. I should maybe have a rest here. Yeah. Maybe maybe there's a message <laughs> coming. Yeah. And looking back, I could see that my body was just screaming at me to stop. And I remember at the time thinking like, right, this is my wake up call. I'll never go here again. And then did it twice more, at least. <laughs> so I do think, like you say, it's a process of learning to listen to your body and trusting what it's saying to you. Yeah, all the cliches are true. You really cannot pour from an empty cup. Mm-hmm. You cannot give and 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 never put anything back and expect to continue to give and give and give. Yeah. I think you need to know what fills your cup back up and then you have to actually prioritize doing that and it's really not easy conversation with Caroline I kept thinking about maximizers and satisficers because you know we're faced with just an incredible number of choices to make every single day and even if you're not in burnout that can be exhausting so this is where these two different types of choice makers come in when faced with a choice maximizers will try and make the decision that has the best possible future outcome for them They put a lot of pressure on themselves trying to get it perfect and right and can often feel really disheartened if they fail to meet the desired outcomes. Sometimes maximizers can even get stuck in what we call analysis paralysis, going round and round a choice but never actually choosing the direction to take because they might get it wrong. In contrast, a satisficer will make their decision based on a couple of modest criteria. They'll find the heart of the matter what benefits or gains are important to them, and then choose the option that's the best fit. While it might seem like maximizers have the best outcomes after all that thinking, the research suggests that there's actually no benefit from all that soul-searching. And if you're exhausted and your brain is full of fog, adopting a satisficer approach to life might be a great way to simplify and free up brain space. I'd love to hear from you as to whether you're a maximizer or a satisficer, Drop me a message or come find me over on Facebook in my group Port in the Storm. Next week, we'll be talking to Emily Jacob. Emily is the person who inspired me to become a coach, and I'm lucky enough to call her a friend now. Emily created her coaching programs because they're what she wishes she'd had when she was recovering from rape. In these Me Too times, we're opening up more and more about rape and sexual assault and Emily has a wealth of experience holding the space for the open conversations we need. She was the person who stood on a stage and shared her story, helping me see that the support for survivors should be created by survivors. It's something that's informed my training and the practice that I've gone on to develop. I feel so incredibly lucky to know her can't wait to introduce you all to her next week. Navigating the Storm is hosted by Anna Knight and produced by Anna Knight and Mel Robinson. 